Hey, it's Johanna Masca. The third Republican debate is this week, still without the frontrunner. President Donald Trump is widely expected to win the nomination, so say a lot of pundits. But I know a lot of Republicans who still have concerns. Sarah Matthews worked with President Trump. She worked for the re-election campaign and his administration. She was a talented recruit with Hill experience when she joined. She stayed on, a big supporter, until January 6th, when she was appalled by her former boss's behavior, including his decision initially not to condemn the violence and protests that were breaking out at the U.S. Capitol. Sarah testified before the January 6th committee. So it was obvious that the situation at the Capitol was violent and escalating quickly. And so I thought that the tweet about the vice president was the last thing that was needed in that moment. It was essentially him giving the green light to these people, telling them that what they were doing at the steps of the Capitol and entering the Capitol was okay, that they were justified in their anger. And he shouldn't have been doing that. He should have been telling these people to go home and to leave and to condemn the violence that we were seeing. If the president had wanted to make a statement um, and address the American people, he could have been on camera almost instantly. I told her that I thought the tweet did not go far enough, that I thought there needed to be a call to action and he needed to condemn the violence. And she looked directly at me and in a hushed tone shared with me that the president did not want to include any sort of mention of peace in that tweet and that it took some convincing on their part, those who were in the room. And she said that there was a back and forth going over different phrases to find something that he was comfortable with. And it wasn't until Ivanka Trump suggested the phrase stay peaceful that he finally agreed to include it. But for this podcast, I talked to Sarah about the Republican field, where the party stands, and what she's thinking heading into this next debate. I had to start by asking her how it feels seeing Donald Trump lead the polls despite the attempt to overthrow the election results. Yeah, it's really crazy to think back. I remember when I resigned on January 6th and that evening just getting a flood of text messages from, you know, folks who work in Republican politics and people just saying, like, thank you for doing the right thing. Thank you for saying what needed to be said. Because in my resignation statement, I called for the need for a peaceful transfer of power, obviously a little too late at that point. Um, But it was, I felt like really important to say because a lot of Republicans weren't out there publicly saying these things at that point. And I think There were even elected officials who were criticizing Trump and and saying that the party needed to move on from him. I mean, I remember Kevin McCarthy was one of those folks. And then a short, you know, month later, he flew down to Mar-a-Lago and kind of embraced Trump and brought him back into the fold with his election lies. And so even though that we're seeing now folks who are being charged in these cases, like Jenna Ellis and Mark Meadows acknowledging that the 2020 election was not stolen. It's almost too little too late. It's a good thing for democracy that they're finally telling the truth. But it's kind of crazy to think that it's probably not going to have much of an impact on Republican voters. And uh, it looks more than likely right now that Trump is going to cruise to the nomination. The only hope I have is that it's November 2023, and the first votes come in January of 2024. So there's two short months for an alternative to make their case. I've been following, of course, every debate, 
And we've got another one coming up in which we'll have Republicans on the stage. And I was very surprised in the first two debates of Nikki Haley's performance. Margaret Thatcher said, if you want something said, ask a man. If you want something done, ask a woman. A win for Russia is a win for China. We have to know that. Ukraine is the first line of defense for us. And the problem that Vivek doesn't understand is he wants to hand Ukraine to Russia. He wants to let China eat Taiwan. He wants to go and stop funding Israel. Three quarters of Americans don't want a rematch between Trump and Biden. And we have to face the fact that Trump is the most disliked politician in America. TikTok is one of the most dangerous social media. Media yes, that is. we could have. And what you've got, I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say. We can't trust you. I just think she's telling some of those truths, probably not as strongly on the Donald Trump side as some would like. But what do you make of Nikki Haley's recent surge in Iowa and her chances with the Republican constituency? I think you're correct. Her debate performances have been incredible. I think that she has given the most substantive policy answers, and she's been able to have really great moments kind of dunking on other people on stage, most notably Vivek. I think that whenever those two spar, that she kind of shines in those moments. And it's I think it's because it's really easy to contrast with someone like Vivek, who, especially on something like foreign policy, just doesn't know what he's talking about. And I think, too, that We've seen a rise in the polls from her since those debate performances. She's polling number two in Iowa. She's polling number two, I saw in a recent South Carolina poll, and she's gaining momentum. And that's what's different um, and sets her apart from the other candidates. And so that's what's really disappointing to me when I look at the rest of the field, because I'm someone who believes that Donald Trump should not be our nominee, A, because I think he's a threat to democracy, but B, if Republicans really want to win in uh, 2024, why would we put up someone who's already lost to Joe Biden once? And so Nikki Haley would be someone who would fit that mold for me. She has the experience. She's shown a willingness to take on Trump, uh, whereas all these other people in the field, in my opinion, are either running a campaign of vengeance and grievance, or they are running to get a cabinet position or be Trump's vice presidential pick. and. So I wish that the other folks in the field would recognize that we need to defeat Donald Trump in a primary. And the best way to do that is to offer one person who is a single alternative to Donald Trump and let them go head to head. But everyone else in the field needs to be dropping out. So I thought that was encouraging to see Mike Pence drop out um, recently. I think he recognizes that you know, there was no path for him. So let's talk about Nikki Haley's actual path to get there, because she would, I mean, our path. So I worked on the Obama campaign back in the original uh, time when we were running against Hillary Clinton. And our path was very much win in Iowa and then continue that momentum forward. Now we lost in New Hampshire and then we went on to South Carolina. And because we'd won in Iowa, we didn't really win in Nevada, but we ended up winning in South Carolina. So I jumped from Iowa to South Carolina, and that was pretty pivotal for us to go onward. But in our race, the delegates were divided proportionally. In the Republican race, some of these states are manipulating their votes so that 
you know, in Nevada, you've even got like a former Trump fake elector who's in charge of this. Like, do you think Nikki Haley is in the position, even if she shines on every debate stage, to actually do the calculation on delegates and win in these contests that are so heavily weighted against her? Yeah, that's what makes it really tricky is that I think the Trump 2024 campaign has really focused on those efforts to try to make these contests more favorable to Trump. And so it would make it tricky for any challenger. I think the best thing that she has going for her that could give her a path is that she is currently kind of in play in multiple states. Whereas when you look at the rest of the 2024 field, you know, Ron DeSantis putting all of his resources in Iowa. Tim Scott has said it's all on Iowa. Chris Christie, his whole campaign is based on New Hampshire. That to me, it's just a one state strategy is not enough right now to dethrone Trump. Whereas at least she is polling high, you know, in second place um, in most of these kinds of early states. And so obviously if all these other folks dropped out and their supporters went to her, then maybe she could mount that challenge. But I just don't know if it will be enough. And I don't think she has time on her side to necessarily make it happen, just given we're only two months away from first votes being cast. You said something else that I want to talk about is Mike Pence. You know, he is the former vice president of the United States. Obviously, there were a lot of people who were skeptical initially of Trump because he was a thrice married person who philandered and admitted it, said grotesque things like he could grab women anywhere he wanted. And Mike Pence was an evangelical Christian. He just did not get the momentum in this election at all. And it makes me wonder Is there still an evangelical base that's with the Republican Party, or is there some sort of bizarre twisting of religion that somehow has the evangelical base in bed with Donald Trump? I think you're spot on with your second point. I think that those evangelical voters are fully behind Donald Trump. And I think while they might have been reluctant and him picking Mike Pence, you know, way back when for his VP running mate was a good decision. I think Donald Trump won them over during his four years in office. Obviously, his picks for the Supreme Court, he picked people that evangelicals would like. And Donald Trump was very pro-life president. And so it is surprising then when you have someone like Mike Pence jump in and you would think, oh, well, he's their perfect candidate. Why wouldn't those folks be lining up behind him? But honestly, it really does come back to January 6th. His position within the Republican Party was forever altered because of his decision to not go along with Trump's scheme to try to overturn the election. And he did the right thing for democracy and did so at you know personal sacrifice because, look, he would have been kind of, if you had to create a Republican candidate in a lab, he would almost be the perfect person that you would draw up. And so I do have to commend Mike Pence for making that decision. And sadly, I kind of thought when he jumped in the race that there was zero shot just because of that decision and that decision alone. I kind of knew it was inevitable that he would have to drop out at some point. Well, and he can endorse at any time. Yes. But he's not bringing a ton of people to the cause necessarily because he hasn't 
drawn a huge amount of support. I guess the idea would be you'd start piling on the Trump alternative, whoever that alternative is, when it's clear that that alternative exists. And then the hope is that anyone who is drawn to Mike Pence or, you know, alternatives, if Tim Scott eventually drops out or if other candidates eventually drop out, then they go to his side. And maybe that's a strategy, but I guess if it doesn't work, do we expect all of those candidates to support Donald Trump and whoever he picks as his vice president, who could very likely be in the same position of being asked to do things that are completely and entirely unethical and not legal (laughs) again. Yeah, I think I was disappointed to see Mike Pence not endorse someone. I think that just the people that were supporting him, more than likely their support, I think, would shift to a Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley has kind of been the person who's been able to coalesce the most anti-Trump support, in my opinion. And I think that he is well aware that a second Trump administration would have no guardrails and that it really would threaten our democracy. And so if he cares about that, which obviously he does based on his decision, then why the heck isn't he endorsing someone like a Nikki Haley so that way we can defeat Donald Trump in a primary? But then I think, yeah, some of these other folks who are still in the race are hoping that they will be selected. But then you have to ask yourself, Okay, so would I be okay with being put in the same position that Trump put Mike Pence in? Would I uphold my oath of office in the Constitution or would I choose being loyal to Trump? And that's really scary to think, because I don't know if a lot of other people would make that same decision that uh, Mike Pence did. And that loyalty question is so like, I mean, you worked on the Hill and you worked in presidential politics. I often found that smart people try to give their counsel and there are kind of two different people. There are people who will go along with everything because they are like a yes, sir, yes, ma'am person. And then there's the advisor type. Have you kept in touch with Kaylee McEnany? No, we are not in touch. I was so disturbed by his going after her. I mean, after all she said, like, I think she just said the polls. I was like, I literally talk about it being a loveless marriage that the Democrats have with Joe Biden on a regular basis. And still, I'm on very good terms with everybody who's working in the Biden orbit. And it's like, I can say what I want and I don't get, you know, someone calling me out on truth social or whatever that is. And it's just so disturbing. And I just wonder, like, Are people going to go along with this even after he says these terrible things about them? Yeah, no, it was really shocking to see him come out and kind of go after Kaylee McEnany because I think that he was upset with her, I think solely because she was saying positive things about Ron DeSantis. And it's not even that she has come out and kind of trashed Trump in any way or flipped on him. She was, I think, one of his most loyal staffers defended a lot and was, I think, his best press secretary that he had during his time in office, in my opinion. And so then to see him attack her, it it just shows that loyalty is a one-way street with Donald Trump and that he only cares about getting it in return, but he will never give it to you. Well, and it's something I've been thinking a lot about because often candidates will use women in a way to 
defend them on some pretty indefensible things. And so I've thought a lot, Sarah, about, you know, in the aftermath of this, I really want women to find our power and not use it to defend men, you know, who don't deserve our defense. Like if Joe Biden says or does something that's wrong, I want to go after him. And I appreciate those women who are holding Donald Trump accountable. But I I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens as he continues to go after people and whether they'll support him. Yeah, I think it's such a good point because Donald Trump is so notorious for going after anyone that he feels like, you know, isn't being supportive of him. I mean, like what came to mind was honestly, he even went after the governor in Iowa, Kim Reynolds, because she was campaigning with Ron DeSantis and hadn't endorsed Trump. This is a fellow Republican and she's been a great governor and she's a a woman. And I think that we should be uplifting people like her in our politics and want her to be the future of the Republican Party. And then he comes out and just attacks her. And it's just so on par for him. And he just he can't help himself. And I think that that really is unpopular with Republican voters when they see him go after fellow Republicans. But I, I guess it doesn't make too much of a dent in their support for him, given he's still a front runner. The thing that I think we can really discuss, not personalities, but actual topics. And I think that substance and those topics are the things that we actually should be talking about. I've been frustrated, I guess, with the previous Republican debates because I don't think they've gone deep enough. I agree with you that Nikki Haley tends to go a little deeper. But this is the first debate that we're talking about Israel. And I know that that's an topic that you want to hear about. What do you want to hear from candidates? I want to hear from candidates um, a strong commitment to support Israel and to give them the aid that they need. And I think that when you see someone like Vivek, who continues to just be so inept when it comes to foreign policy and saying just stupid things that don't make sense and that aren't in line with, I think, the principles of conservatism. And I think that this will be another opportunity for Nikki Haley to shine and show off her foreign policy chops and uh, hopefully bash Vivek over the head again and really just draw a contrast between her and him because she, I have to commend her, has been so strong and unwavering in her support for Israel and Ukraine especially too, at a time when there are some Republicans in the party who are questioning support for Ukraine. And so, and I'm afraid that the same thing will end up happening to Israel too, because I think at first our Republicans were strong in their support for Ukraine. And then as the war waged on, obviously we saw that support start to waver in the party. And so that is something that I'm definitely going to be keen on to see how Republicans feel. And then I think too, with the upcoming aid, some Republicans want to see that aid packaged together for additional aid to Ukraine and aid to Israel. And so I'm curious to see if they get asked about that, if they think it should be a combined package or if it should be split. Well, it was interesting because I was 
on talking about the congressional um, suggestion that they can't do it with Ukraine, but evidently they want to do it with reform of tax policy because they think that's going to be easier. And I was like, hello, Paul Ryan. Didn't we have to learn that the hard way? No, it's not easier. I think you're right that there's a lot of people questioning the U.S.'s involvement outside of the U.S. because there are a lot of people inside the U.S. who worry about the support that everyday citizens are getting, right? The inequities, the growing problems here at home, whether with crime or with, you know, our schools. And so I think that, you know, you're seeing some of that and it's complex and you see the debates and people make it seem like solving that is easy. (laughs) It's probably not. On the one area where I have been interested about Vivek, there's been this debate in the aftermath of what happened in Israel. There are people who probably don't have enough information who have probably never been there because I've been to Ramallah and I've dealt with the Palestinian Authority. And there's this sentiment that'll say, you know, free Palestine. And I often, you know, have to preface it with, I don't think people quite understand what they're saying. I support the Palestinian people, those young girls who I met at an Intel tech lab who have big dreams of getting outside of their walls and becoming the next Mark Zuckerberg or whatever they want to do. I have nothing but love in my heart for those children. They are innocent. They want bigger things than a government that can't help them. But what I saw was the Palestinian Authority, our trip there, they were completely disorganized. They printed a credential in which they had literally, I kid you not, grimace the like character on a credential in the Palestinian Authority. I mean, the Israelis were the opposite. Like they had like the Mossad is like on top of everything everything. And it was, you know, it it was very difficult for us because they'd strip searched a Palestinian journalist who just wanted to come into Israel. This is a hugely complex issue. And I want those children to be free. There's no clear solution to get there right now. And Bibi Netanyahu has not necessarily been doing everything with even the support of his own people. There are a lot of questions of the judicial reforms and things that he was pressing. And some former Mossad agents who are calling into question whether he was paying attention to the wrong things. This is so complex. People who are just seeing one side or another, they may not know enough about it. But what's happening is this toxic, we're not even talking about it at colleges. If you say free Palestine, we're just, you know, canceling you, which is like, what are we doing? And, you know, I was on with somebody who was like, you know, I think they absolutely have the right to say they're not going to hire a single person who was part of any of those marches and protests. And I'm like, this is coming from the same people who said it is absolutely a terrible idea to say that anyone who worked for Trump should not be hired. Remember this? I'm like, what are we thinking? We're going mad. Yeah. It is kind of funny when you bring up like it's cancel culture in both ways. And so, you know, on one side, yeah, the left wants to cancel anyone who worked for Trump. And then the right is saying, let's cancel 
people who were part of this. And I think that there's just, um, I don't want to say ignorance because I don't mean it that way. People are getting information from social media that is literally as being manipulated to make them believe, you know, one thing or the other. Similarly, Vladimir Putin is using social media to get people to question our support of Ukraine. And so it's just that people don't have all of the information. And so they may say that they support free Palestine. And I want to have the conversation. How? How can we do that? (laughs) I'm for that. I want the people, those little girls to have that chance. How are we going to do that? Yeah, I think that's the thing is that there's a big difference between supporting the free Palestine movement and then being pro-Hamas. And I think that some of the protesters that we've seen on college campuses have said that they endorse Hamas doing what they did because, you know, to free Palestine by any means necessary. That's where it becomes an issue. And that's where it's like, ah, I don't think that, you know, attacking innocent music festival goers and raping and killing women and kidnapping babies and things like that is justifiable in any way. But then at the same time, you don't want to see innocent Palestinians, you know, be killed either. But I think that we also know that we kind of learn the lessons from the war in Iraq and that you need to be cautious and careful with um, how you operate and move forward. So young voters, I do, when I look at the numbers, I see, you know, again, the younger voters, and I spoke at a public school, and I was getting all these questions, actually, about these big issues, you know, what's happening with the world. I mean, Armenia is another one. We had Armenian protesters outside of the Reagan Library. Armenia and Azerbaijan are teetering on conflict. It's very troubling. Armenia, of course, has signed up to be part of the International Criminal Courts. They've turned against Vladimir Putin. That's put them in a precarious spot. You see young voters wanting to have this information, but I think that sometimes they get turned off. What do you think about, are there young conservatives who are very energized for any particular candidate in this election? Are you watching young voters? Are they hearing what they want to hear out of the candidates? I think that some of the candidates are just kind of out of touch with the next generation. And that's the problem for the Republican Party is that we've lost the popular vote for what, like the last 20 years or something. And if we want to start winning, you know, national elections again, then we need to be expanding the electorate. And when you're taking stances like that, you're definitely not going to be winning over young voters. And so I think that Republicans need to do a better job of reaching out to that group. Well, that brings up abortion. Abortion access, I mean, obviously, there's been a segment of the Republican Party for a long time that's pushed for abortion bans. There's access to abortion and contraceptive care has been the standard in the U.S. for a long time. And a lot of people resent the idea that the federal government or any government should have a say over the most important decision they're ever going to make in their life, especially knowing that it's complicated when you have a child. 
Do you think any of the candidates are saying the right thing on abortion? Because, I mean, you mentioned Donald Trump. He was, you know, the most anti-abortion candidate. And now he's the one who's saying, oh, you know, we can't actually have a ban, (laughs) even though he's the one who got Roe v. Wade overturned. Exactly. I kind of think it's funny. I think he has some consultant in his ear telling him that um, being for a total ban on abortion is a total loser when it comes to a general election. And so he's trying to reframe, you know, his message on this issue because we saw in the 2022 midterms how that went for Republicans and abortion was a huge part of that and why there was no red wave. And I think, I don't know if there's like a candidate in the current Republican field that I am most in line with their abortion policy, but I do think that where Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia has been on abortion is definitely, I think, more in line with where I think Republicans should be. He's been out there kind of actively campaigning on this for the upcoming Virginia State House elections. And he's been saying, you know, a 15-week ban is more in line with where the majority of Americans are at. Um, this is when a baby starts to feel pain. And even polling reflects this position where I think it's something like 69% of Americans support an abortion during the first trimester, but that support dips to 37% in the second trimester. And so that 15-week mark would be kind of online with that. But he's been saying that you need to have the three exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. And I think that that is more of a message that Republicans should be willing to get behind because it's reasonable limitations. And I think with some of these other candidates that are in the current field for the um, GOP nomination, they, you know, they've been pushing for extreme bans. Like, you know, we see it in with Ron DeSantis in Florida, he supported a six week ban. That's crazy to me. That's absurd. Most women don't even know they're pregnant by that point. And I just think that it's really out of step with where vast majority of Americans are at. And so I would hope that more Republicans would be kind of campaigning in the same vein that using that same message that we've seen from Youngkin. And we'll we'll see, you know, in the upcoming election if it's effective or not. That's right, because the 15 week ban, I still feel like one, we're operating from the heart and not the facts. Most abortions are performed before the end of the first trimester. The abortions that are performed after the first trimester normally have, there's a reason behind it. Like anything that's done at a late stage is because in some cases the fetus, they know there's no way that this can be carried to term. And so you're essentially having a woman carry something that has no ability to uh, have life. And so it's complicated. And so it's always been curious to me how a party that is not for regulation is for regulation of women's bodies, which, you know, I do think there are a lot of people involved in these family planning decisions. And I my hope is that the, you know, husband or whoever is the father is involved, that there's other family members involved, that there are medical practitioners involved. And I guess the question is whether I guess the majority of people think that the state should have that role. 
the last topic you wanted to see covered is gun violence. Uh, tell me about that. What do you want to see the Republicans talk about there? Kind of like we were saying earlier in our discussion, just about the Republican Party's need to appeal to young voters. I think that gun violence is one of those issues, again, where Republicans really aren't offering any solutions on that front. And the status quo we know is unacceptable. And so I'm not saying I want to see Republicans go out there and say, okay, we're going to ban all assault weapons. That's not it at all. I think that there is a way to have reasonable solutions to help this problem whilst not infringing on the rights of uh, law-abiding gun owners. And obviously with the recent shooting in Maine, I think it's topical and it's not something we've really seen the debates go in depth on. And so I would like to see where the candidates stand on this issue, because I really do think there are some common sense reforms that could be passed on a bipartisan basis with Democrats. And I think in a recent interview, Ron DeSantis said that he doesn't support red flag laws. And that is just something that is kind of unacceptable to me. I think it's one of those common sense reforms that Republicans should be able to get behind on. And I know I when I was in school, we were practicing these kinds of drills for lockdowns and school shooters. And it's crazy to me that the problem has only gotten worse since, you know, I left school. You can't just keep kicking this can down the road and hope this problem goes away because it's not going away. And just saying investing in mental health, while that is a necessary part of the problem and something we should be doing, that's not enough. There has to be other things that we're willing to do, like I think red flag laws, comprehensive background checks, et cetera. So that is something I hope will be brought up. Well, my son's first active shooter drill was when he was in kindergarten. Oh, my God. That just like that gave me chills. It's just awful. We have a lot of things that I think could get done in a bipartisan way. Sarah, if only our parties will start talking with one another, which is why I'm so grateful today for you bringing your perspectives on press advance. We will see what happens in this debate, and I can't wait to check in with you again so we can figure out if there were any topics where we thought, okay, let's show some leadership here. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Every finger. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. I look forward to talking with you again. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm grateful for Sarah Matthews, and I'll just add, I saw a lot of my dear friends who were part of the Hope and Change campaign in 2008, last week in Chicago. Many of them told me they were very positive about talking to Republicans and liked what I'm doing on Press Advance. I know we can all do better to reach across the aisle, to talk to people who have different views than us, and to try to find common ground at a very divided time. I was particularly thrilled to get to see the Iowa team, the folks behind the slogan, Respect, Empower, Include. We're still working on it here at Press Advance, so please let me know what you're thinking as we head into this election. You can find me on social media at Johanna Masca.